pushing buttons and pulling triggers. This is Gun Funny. Welcome to Gun Funny episode 221. Today I'm going to chat with Vincent Hancock, discuss a new report for the ATF compiling firearm sales records, highlight a new 46 by 30 from CMMG, and talk about some odd behavior of self-driving cars. I'm your host, Ava Flanell. I just got back from vacation. I feel wonderful. I mean, minus the cold that I'm in now. I was like in 80 degree weather and starting to get, you know, a little bit of sun. You know, I didn't look pale and now I'm just back in the cold again, but it feels good to get away. Don't you like, Vincent, when's the last time that you took a vacation? It's been a hot minute. Yeah. Like for (laughs) me, for me, it it actually had been, I mean, I go away all the time, like on trips, but it's always work trips. I'm like, when's the last time I like just went away and relaxed and like did something for me. And it's been a while and it was much needed because I felt really burnt out. And I feel actually pretty good now being back. I got back yesterday and like worked and just felt so much more productive. Yeah. If you guys haven't taken a vacation, definitely do yourself a favor, even just take a weekend and just like do nothing. And it actually just feels so good. Vincent, before we get into everything that you do, taking a quick break real quick, talking about Smith and Wesson. I don't know if you've heard, but Smith & Wesson, they just released a new line of their M&P M2.0 handguns chambered in 10 millimeter. And I know a lot of people have been asking for this for a while now. 10 millimeter is obviously, you know, it's great for like, let's say you're going hiking or something. I mean, I would say it's probably a little overkill maybe for self-defense. I mean, I guess it just depends, you know, especially with the winter, depending, you know, how many layers they're wearing. But typically... What I would say is 10 millimeters pretty ideal if you're hiking and you're using your gun for self-defense against a possible animal attack. Right now it's available in 4.6 inches or 4 inches, and they're both 15-round mags. Both are optic-ready so that you can mount your favorite dot and have that optic height sights uh, so that you can co-witness. You can get them with or without the thumb safety. I'm personally one that always goes without the thumb safety. I'm not a huge fan. And then like all the other M&Ps, they have the interchangeable palm swells and a low bore axis. So it should be milder for that powerful 10 millimeter, more so than other pistols that are typically, you know, that are chambered in 10 millimeter. You can check those out and more about it at smith-wesson.com. And now it's time to get into the show. Learn the things you never knew. On Deconstructing the Industry. Vincent, for those who aren't familiar with who you are, can you just give me a little rundown of what it is that you do in the gun industry? So I have been for the last 20 plus years active in the Olympic genre of shooting and particularly clay target shooting. So my discipline specifically is international skeet. And I've competed in the last four Olympic Games. And thankfully, uh, Tokyo being this most, the most recent one, I was able to get my third Olympic gold out of those four trips. Wow. So I've kind of I've got, I've shot a lot of different targets. You know, 
definitely closing in on that million and a half targets shot number uh, over that 20 plus years. But uh, I love what I do. And it's been a blast, literally and figuratively. Right. Well, congratulations. That's amazing. And it's actually, I mean, it's impressive everything that you've accomplished, which we're going to talk about a little bit more here shortly. But you started competing at the age of 11. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, 10, 11, it's kind of like right on that, on that cusp. Uh-huh. Uh, I shot my first round of skeet, uh, which was just what my dad introduced me to when I was 10. And then I quickly transitioned into sporting clays. Uh, I think I have my, I still have my original trophy from the, from the year 2000. So I think I was right at 11 years old when I won that first sporting clays junior, I think it was a sub junior little shoe. Wow. And then kind of transitioned into the Olympic discipline pretty quickly after that. And what was it that got you started? Was your dad also, you know, pretty well seasoned and, you know, in shooting or was it something else? Like, did you just have an interest and he's like, all right, we'll get you into it. And it was, it was a a bit of both. I mean, I grew up, my, my parents have pictures of me sitting in a baby stroller back behind the firing line as my dad and my brother were both competing at the Southern Grand. Wow. Uh, back in the 90s. So I mean, my brother and my dad were both all Americans in trap shooting. And so, I mean, it, it does run in the family, you know, for the last couple of generations that we've been shooting, whether it be rifle or shotgun. And I, I just kind of had an interest for it. And I picked up a gun and I was, I was pretty good at it pretty quickly. And you know, for me, being 10 years old, I was convinced that I was going to be a professional baseball player. That's, that's what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And and I just kind of shot for fun so I could do something with my dad. And then oh, quickly I started figuring out, hey, you know what? I'm actually kind of good at this. And I was super competitive. So, you know, I started competing against other kids that were older than me or, or out at 4-H practice. And those kids were out there shooting and I'm, you know, four years younger than they are. And I'm sitting there trying to beat them because that's just how competitive I was. Uh, and so I was kind of pushing myself at a pretty young age to be good at shooting. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't know, what is the difference between sporting clays and skeet shooting? So sporting clays is kind of like uh, golf with a shotgun. You have different stations. You're going to have different machines that are set up on every station. You're never going to find two courses that are the same. Mm-hmm. And traditionally, it's going to be 100 targets shot for a round of sporting clays. In skeet, it's more standardized. And it's it's the original game that was created back in England in the 1800s some odd time Um, and it was originally set up in a full circle well our ranges now as the ski field stand we have a high house and a low house that are in a 180 degree line so and then we have a half circle that's on one side of that typically the ranges are going to face north and so this the south side is going to have this little semicircle and there's eight different stations on a ski field and there's American skeet and there's international skeet, which there's a vast difference between the two, but the field is exactly the same. But my targets in international travel about 20 miles an hour, 15, 20 miles an hour faster, depending on where you measure them at, uh, measure the speed. And our, so they travel further, faster. We have to start with the gun down at our hip versus American skeet gets to start with the gun on your shoulder. Pretty much every shotgun discipline gets to start with the gun on your shoulder, except for international skeet. And we have a different sequence than what you shoot on. It's compounded against you, essentially. It's there to make it a lot harder. 
And the goal for us is we have to shoot 25 target rounds. In American skeet, you'll shoot 100 targets, and that's typically what you're going to be going for a score out of 100. In international skeet, we shoot 125 targets. That's five rounds that are shot over the course of two days versus four rounds that are typically shot over the course of two hours in American skeet. So again, it's it's stacked against us because you got to go day by day and and all adds up. But essentially, that's about as easy as I can break it down, although it was a little lengthy. There's a lot that goes into it. Yeah, definitely. That's actually, I I mean, I really like your answer. You explained it really well. (laughs) Okay, let's talk about when you first won the world championship. You were 16, right? And this was like 2005. Yep. What was that like? to win like such a world title at such a young age? Uh, I mean, it, it was kind of crazy, honestly. Uh, in 2004, uh, prior to that year of 05, I had been shooting really, really well. I was only 15. I won the final Olympic selection, but I didn't do well enough in the first Olympic selection to actually make the Athens Games in 2004. So I had my head dead set on that 2005 is going to be my year. Mm-hmm. Now I'm shooting better than anybody else in the world. I'm watching the scores. I know how I'm doing in both practice and competition. So like, I'm going to go out and I'm just going to do the best that I can do. Uh, I, I plan on winning. And so I went to my first World Cup in April of 05. Uh, the first one I'd ever competed in as an, as an open male division athlete. And I won it. I shot a new world record. And everybody was like, you know, that, that you were lucky. You know, like that's never going to happen again. And then the next month in May, we had a World Cup in Rome. And then the next week, we had the World Championships in Lenato, Italy. So I got a silver medal in Rome and then went to Lenato and ended up getting, winning gold there for the World Championships. And if you ask anybody, if you're going to win a World Championships in the international game, Italy is the place to do it because one, I was a shooter for Beretta. So, I mean, I'm, I'm an hour away from Gardone, which mm-hmm. is where Beretta is headquartered. And so all of Beretta's there watching all of the Italians are there. They're the best of the best. Excuse me. My keys just fell. No, oh, I was um, like, what did you do? Just drop a bunch <laughs> of change or something? <laughs> uh, I'm still in my workout pants from the gym. So they just fell out of my pants. Oh. Um, so you know, winning there was kind of set the whole precedence for my career Yeah, that I've, I've won on the biggest stage that you can possibly win on. And now the only thing bigger is going to be the Olympics. And uh, I, I went through the rest of 05 and shot really, really well. And that kind of just was the, the springboard that I needed to have the confidence to go to my first Olympic games in 08 and try to do as well as I could. Wow. And the people that you were up against in 2005, I mean, these were a lot of like really experienced shooters and they aren't, they're not necessarily the same age, correct? Yeah, no, I was, I think I'm the youngest person to ever win a world championship. Wow. And I'm the youngest guy to ever win an Olympic gold too, uh, in the men's side of things. And so watching all of it, uh, I'm, I'm competing against the guys that I grew up at the very first five years of my shooting career, watching them win Olympic medals, uh, watching them win world championships. And they're all like my dad's age or a little bit younger. Mm-hmm. And I mean, thirties, forties and guys that are in their prime of, of shooting and in life in general. And I'm out there and at 16 years old, I'm this young kind of cocky kid yeah. that's just coming in and like 
how is he shooting and how is he beating me? Like he hasn't been shooting long enough to be able to do that. Yeah. And it's just, I, I was extremely competitive. I can't, I can't stress that enough that I wanted to do everything that I could to win. And I mean, I pushed myself harder than I think anybody, anybody has in the past. And I know there's going to be some, some kids that come along in the future that are going to outwork me, but that's why I'm still, still here at the range today, uh, getting ready to practice so I can try to stay on top. Yeah, no kidding. That's incredible. Okay. So then from there, you join the army, correct? And, yep. and, uh, and when that, I'm assuming that was at the age of 18. No, actually I was, uh, they convinced me when I was 16, I turned 17 in March of 06. And then I went to basic training between my junior and senior year of high school. So I did what they, what was called a split op program. And so June 1st, I shipped out. Cause I think I finished up my junior year on like May 26th. And on June 1st, I shipped out to basic training and spent the entire summer at Fort Sill. Uh, I missed my first week of, of my senior year. And then I came back to school, finished out high school, and then actually went to the Army Marksmanship Unit right after I graduated from high school because I still had to compete at the Pan American Games that summer and then go to uh, the first Olympic selection. And if I would have done my basic training in AIT altogether, then I wouldn't have been able to compete for the 08 games. And we all knew that uh, I was primed for doing well in Beijing. Hmm. It was kind of a, a process of my parents had to sign off for me to be able to go in because I was only 17 years old. Yeah. And though I was in the reserves for a year, roughly. I had some active time when I, when I traveled to competitions that they were able to do that. And, and I was immediately assigned to the army marksmanship unit. That's who recruited me. That's my job in the army was to go and compete for world cup, world championships, Olympic medals. And yes, I had an AIT. Uh, and for me it was, okay, what can I, I know what my goal is. I signed up through two Olympic games, 2008, 2012. What can I do to maximize my potential while I'm at the army marksmanship unit? And it was, I was convinced I was going to go infantry because it was based out of Fort Benning. But being in the split-op program, they were going to start me over at week three of basic training and then run me through like the next 11 weeks or something like that. I'm like, yeah, no, thank you. I don't want to go back through basic training ever again. Mm -hmm. So let me find something that's shorter that will allow me to have a job for the military in case they ever need me, but that will get me back to my unit faster so I can start practicing and preparing for making that Beijing team. So I ended up being a motor transport operator so I learned how to drive all, all the different trucks and vehicles that the Army has. I got to learn how to drive them. And honestly, it was a lot of fun. And it, it was pretty simple, but it was a lot of fun. And I went back to the unit and I never saw another military truck again for the rest of my service. Wow. I'm curious, like, what were your parents' reactions to all of your success? I mean, do you think that they ever thought that you would be this successful? Did you kind of like blow them away or did they kind of think that you always had it in you? I think if you talk to my mom, she's going to, of course, say, oh, I, I knew this. And, you know, I, he was going to be great and all yeah. that kind of stuff. You talk to my dad and he's like, that was a hard headed kid. And I had no idea what he was going to do. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> there's a lot of different directions that can go. But they both got to see firsthand you know, how much time and effort I put into trying to be better and making myself better than everybody else. 
Uh, it's not to say that, that I'm better than anyone. It's just for the fact of when we stepped on the range, I was more prepared than almost anybody out there due to the amount of hours that I put in on a daily basis. I mean, my, my routine for a day while I lived at home with them was I would get up in the morning before school and I would do practice mounts. And then I'd, I'd eat breakfast, go to school at, at three o'clock. I get out at three 30. I was on the range training. I would train till pretty much dark and uh, whether that be six 30 or eight 30 and sometimes shooting with the lights on just to be able to get in the finish of the practice. And then I would go home, I would do homework, eat dinner, and then I would do practice mounts again. And then I would lay on the floor and I would do visualization and relaxation techniques. It's every single day. I mean, this was seven days a week. And now then also working with a sports psychologist to be able to help me overcome that threshold of, am I good enough to actually beat guys that are twice my age mm -hmm. and that have been doing this longer than I've been alive. And, and that all helped me get to a place where I was confident enough that I knew that I was worth it. I knew that I was capable. And as long as I believed in myself and went out there and just executed, then I would be able to get what I wanted. Excellent. I'm going to take a quick break real quick, talk about primary arms. Recently, I shot the IWI Uzi. Um, and after shooting it, so originally I wasn't going to put an optic on it. And then after shooting it, I was like, okay, this is like really awkward to shoot without an optic with the brace, you know, if you're shouldering the brace and then like trying to line up those sights, it's just, it was very uncomfortable. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to put an optic on it. But obviously I wanted something that wasn't going to be like super bulky and look kind of weird on it. So I chose the SLX, the MD25, since, you know, like I said, I didn't want something big. The MD-25 is an award-winning optic this year since it's designed with a 25-millimeter size body, but it has a field of view inside the optic the same size as most 30-millimeter optics. Definitely one that you should check out if you're looking for a compact optic. Best thing is it's only $189, so super affordable, especially for a prism sight. We're also, right now, I'm giving away one this month on Gun Funny Podcast Instagram, if you guys go and find the picture of the MD-25, all you have to do is just post on it, uh, follow, just follow the directions on that post. And at the end of this month, I'll be picking a lucky winner. And then as always, if you find a primary arm optic that you want to buy, remember to use the code AVA, that's A-V-A, and you're going to get a free scope mount with every primary arms optic. Vincent, I want to go back to something you said. So you had a sports psychologist and basically, you know, just kind of preparing you, like basically to not get in your own head, which I think is so key really for anyone's success. And I don't, you know, I mean, for one, I mean, it's gotta be kind of terrifying. I would imagine that like, here you are up against these people that you probably looked up to growing up and now you're competing with them and you know how good they are. And, you know, so what was some of the things that they did to like sort of mentally prepare you for that? There's a few different things. It's been a long time ago now. I'm trying to remember. I mean, is it like you look at yourself in the mirror and you're like, you're the best. You got this. You're a badass bitch. Because that's what I do in the morning. <laughs> that is uh, some of the things that, yes, we went through. I mean, it's part of convincing yourself that you're that you're worthy. I mean, you are capable of doing this. If we're being and honest, I, I totally do give myself pep talks all the time, like way too much that I even want to admit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've been right there. I mean, at the, at the games this past summer, 
you know, I'm beforehand, I'm sitting there like, you know, you're doubting, you're going through. And of, of course you're going to have these intrusive thoughts you know, mm-hmm. sometimes that occasionally will pop up. And how do you combat that? You yeah. don't just try not yeah. to think about it because the more you try not to think about an elephant, the more you're going to think about an elephant. Right. Mm-hmm. And so you just, you have to talk to yourself. You, you take out the negative and you put in the positive. You're like, no, you, I'm, anything can happen, of course. And everybody there is going with the expectation of winning. So you're competing against the best athletes in the world. Yes. But I have put in the work. I have done everything that I possibly can to make myself peak at the right time and through peak periodization schedules, through uh, gym time, through practice mounts, through visualization, through practice on the range. I've put in everything that I need to put in to be successful here. And the, you know, you just have to believe it. And that's what I would tell myself, Jim, just believe in yourself because you've done this before. Even when, at that point, I've done, it, I've done it twice. I've been to three games. I've got two Olympic golds. Why is this one any harder than the other ones? Mm-hmm. It's not. It's the exact same. So just go out, treat it just like practice, which my expectation for practice is perfect practice every single time. Because when I go to a competition, my expectation again is going to be perfect. And that's what I, I tried to lean into and just trust myself. What would you say for the people who, so one thing that always kind of messes me up is let's say you're shooting and in the beginning you miss your target. And then it's like all of a sudden you get in your head and then you just suck like moving forward because you're still focused on that first shot that you missed. Yeah, you have to have a, a quick, quick and forgetful memory. Yeah. Now the thing is, is you have to, you have to accept it. You're like, okay, I missed that target. Why did I miss that target? I didn't do this, this, and this. And so the next time I'm going to do this, this, and this, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to make sure that that process is correct. Once you break it down to where it's not something that's degrading you or potentially putting you out of something, you're able to tell yourself the correction and then move on. Now, that's something that I've, I've worked on a lot is not having, setting again, those expectations in practice of when I miss a target, there's not a a grand reaction. There's not something that's going to be, you know, me throwing a fit or anything like that. It's you accept it. There's literally nothing you can do about it anyway. You just tell yourself what to do correctly the next time. And then you go and you do it correctly the next time. And once you do that, it's, it's perfectly fine. Then mm-hmm. you just have to be able to be willing to let some things go. Understand that there, again, there's nothing you can do. So why dwell on it? Focus on what's coming next. And then you, the next targets you shoot, the next shot you shoot, that's just, again, getting you to transition from one negative thought to a positive thought. And then you're on your way back to doing exactly what you set out to do in the first place. I love it. Circling back. So let's talk about the Army Markmanship Unit. What was your experience like there? It was, it was a great experience. Um, being a part of that unit in particular, uh, which has had some of the most success of any single team in the entire world in Olympic history. Uh, it's it's incredible. Uh, I mean, they have 50 some odd Olympic medals, if I remember correctly, just out of that unit alone since 1956, when it was founded by President Eisenhower. You know, that, that was the goal and the expectations set by him back in the day is that we're going to go to the Olympics and we're going to win. And they've held up to that. So being there you know, at a young age, it, it helped to one, kind of set my understanding of, okay, this is what the military is. This is what uh, this is the kind of person that I need to be because there's a lot of guys out there that are tougher than me, that are harder than me, that push harder, that are more successful. 
And what can I do to not only represent myself, but my country, my fellow servicemen and women? And you know, that there's a sense of pride that goes along with it too. So again, it, it's just another expectation. And I don't view expectations as a negative thing. I, I view them as a positive thing because that means that you're put in a position to represent something. And it gives you that opportunity to go and actually do something positive. And that's what I set for myself. That's what I set for my children. Yes, they're, they're expectations, but it's not something to shy away from or to take it as, man, this is a burden. No, this is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. And we're always searching for good opportunities. So I have that. Let's make the most out of it. Yeah. You have a truly impressive list of shooting titles. So you're the first person to win four world titles in men's skeet shooting. You've won 16 World Cup medals and five World Cup finalists. You're the first Olympic skeet shooter to win gold medals in the same event in consecutive Olympic Games. How do you balance everything out with like home life? You know, you mentioned you have uh, children and a wife. And I've got to imagine, I mean, it's just it's probably just a lot of work. I mean, it is. And and I will say that I've failed in a lot of ways uh, and on many occasions. It's it's been it's been tough. But at the same time, thankfully, I've got I've had a really good team behind me, mm-hmm. you know, between uh, the, the struggles that, that my wife and I have had in the past and being able to get through that, because the, the schedule that I have to maintain is. It kind of sucks, I'm not going to lie, and you know, having to be gone all the time and, and you know, she's got to she's got to take care of the kids every time that I'm gone and she's got to do this. She's got to do that. It, it's hard to manage all of it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know. I've tried to tr- get a better understanding of who I need to be uh, as a person, uh, as a husband, as a father, as an athlete, and really figure out, okay, I need to learn how to compartmentalize each segment of my life to where I can be that person that I need to be, the best person I can be for each one of those compartments. So how do I do that? It's when I get to the range, I have a mindset of, okay, I'm here to train. And this is what I'm going to do. And then when I get home and I'm playing with the kids, I'm a father and that's my sole focus. And then when I have my time with my wife, I'm a husband. You now I, I ask her about her day. I, I ask my kids about their day every day and you know, see how they do. I make them, they probably think it's annoying at this point in time, but whenever, as soon as I get in the truck, when I pick them up you now, which is the majority of the days of the week, it's how was your day? And tell me something about your day that was good. And so we go through that every single time. Um, and then you know, I asked my wife about her day. You know, how was your day at the hospital? How was your day at, at school? What, what's, what's going on? And it's just that, that those little things that you can pick up on that, no, I'm not the, the best husband. I'm not the best father. I'm not the best athlete. I, I just try to be as good as I can be at each one of those. And some days are better than others. That's all I can, all I can really say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. One thing caught my attention when you said that you pick your kids up and you're like, okay, tell me, you know, one good thing that happened. And that's similar to somebody else that I recently met when she picks up her kids. She's like, tell me one, one positive thing that happened or no, I think it was three, three positive things. And I like that because it sets children's, you know, like just, you know, for them to be at like such a young age to concentrate on the good as opposed to the bad. And I yep. think that, you know, nowadays we're always concentrated on the bad and rarely do we appreciate the good. And I think, you know, so I think that's an excellent exercise. And 
And really, I mean, we all have so much to be appreciative of and we really don't even realize it. I mean, even the other day I was hiking and my girlfriend, my friend, who's a girlfriend, I need to stop saying girlfriend because then people just think I'm a lesbo, but (laughs) not that I have anything against lesbians, but she, you know, she's like, I'm so exhausted. And I'm like, yeah, but you know what? I'm like, we're hiking. And do you know how many people would love to be doing this? Some people can't. So I'm like, keep pushing. (laughs) Yep. Okay. So, and then also your wife, she also shoots, correct? She used to. That's actually how we met was in, in 2006, April 1st of 06, I was at the Army Marksmanship Unit, Fort Benning, trying to figure out, okay, do I actually want to join this unit and go here and be a part of it? And she was shooting a trap match that day. And she, like I pulled up in my truck, I got out, and then all of a sudden I see her walking. She looks at me, gives me this little half smile, flips her hair, and then I, I'm if I can ever put down that there's a, a thing called love at first sight, that would be it for me. <laughs> and so I followed her into the clubhouse and that is, uh, that was the first girl I'd ever asked for her number. So it was, it was kind of cool. Uh, and you know, it's kind of awesome that somehow I was able to finagle that into dating her and then talking her into marrying me. So yeah, it all worked out good <laughs> yeah so so i'm assuming you were like about 17 18 when you met her yep i had just turned 17 and she was still 16 when we first met huh, that's cute i'm gonna take another quick break talk about iwi I finally had the chance to shoot the Galil pistol and mine's the new Gen 2 version, which has a full length rail on top. So the built in irons, they're gone, but it does have a free flow M lock rail, which a lot of people were doing to the previous version with aftermarket parts. I think that's why they did it. One of the things I really like about it is that it has the reliability of the AK, but it's a lot more refined. Also, it's got the charging handle on the left side, which makes it a lot easier, especially if you're used to shooting ARs rather than AKs. And it also has a new trigger profile and safety throw, which were improved based on customer feedback from the Gen 1. You can check that out at IWI.us. I also heard that they have more pistol grips back in stock, which have been out of stock for a while. So um, another reason to stop there. So again, that's IWI.us. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY15, and that gets you 15% off. I want to talk about your sponsors real quick, because actually when I arranged to have you on the show, I saw that you were sponsored by Federal and I was like, oh, hey, I'm recently sponsored by Federal. You know, I mean, so I don't know everybody who is sponsored and everyone who's on the team. I did go to an event recently and got to meet some people. And I will say that Federal definitely has expanded as far as like who they sponsor. I mean, they sponsor all kinds. I mean, they have like every little category covered. I'm not really sure what category it is I cover because I'm not a pro shooter. And and people actually, when they, it's funny because, you know, when you tell people like, yeah, I'm sponsored by Smith & Wesson and Federal and they're like, oh, you know, you must shoot really well. And I'm like, mm, I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> you well, know, I think that probably compared to the vast majority of people, you're a very good shot. Uh, but within the industry obviously there's different different standards of what is good yeah which is it's kind of always been frustrating uh because there's there's so many people that are out there that are great shots oh that are amazing and and but 
they're like, you know, some people get after them when they say, Oh yeah, I'm a really good shot. And they're like, well, you're, you're not as good as Max Michelle. And I'm like, well, no, I'm never going to be as good as Max Michelle. Cause he's amazing. <laughs> or, you know, like, or, or a JJ Ricasa, those guys. I mean, like, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm never going to be that. That doesn't mean that I'm not a good shot for a normal human being, but they are not normal. Yeah. Like they're great. <laughs> I know. Sometimes I watch videos of them and I'm just like, how, how do you even do that? And I'm over here just like, you know, plinking, like, you know, not even fast. I mean, maybe I'm a little accurate, but I'm just like how, I don't even know how I ended up in this position, (laughs) (laughs) but it is really nice to meet somebody else who's also sponsored by federal and just working with them just in the, you know, few months that I've been working with them. They're definitely a really good company to work with. And everyone that I met when I was there, just seems really nice and like down to earth and just funny to be around. Like we all just had a lot of laughs and I don't know, you know, sometimes you're around certain people and they're just like super uptight and you're just like, okay, this is super awkward. Make sure you sugarcoat everything. (laughs) Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, I can definitely agree with you in that, you know, all of my interactions with, with the federal guys have been amazing. You know, they're, they're super nice people, really easy to talk to in between, Jason Nash and Jason Vanderbrink and, and the rest of the team that's there, they make me feel like home every time, every time I'm there. But I mean, also the guys that are out in the field too, and, and mm-hmm. working with the ammunition and, and everything else that they do. And I've, I've been to the factory. I've talked with the engineers that design the products, the the guys that are actually there on the machines, working the products. Yeah. And all of them are just awesome. Yeah. Really and truly awesome. And like the shell that I shoot, which is the gold medal grand, it's a, it's a paper hull it's it's a process of like a month long deal that it takes to make one of these shells now obviously they make a bunch at a time but it's it's the curing process of the paper it has to go through like several different uh editions of curing and they got to put the wax on it and then it has to get loaded and it has to sit for a little bit longer and it has to be kind of temperature controlled too so it's crazy what they put into making that load but it goes to show you that now that's the reason why they're the team usa sponsor yeah, you know, we shot federal ammunition at the Olympic Games, and we won four Olympic medals in shotgun with that, wow. and with the, with that load. So I mean, it's a it's a great round, and I have full faith in it. I mean, that, that is literally the favorite, my favorite shot I've ever shot. I shot it while I was in the army, and I got spoiled because they had like a million rounds of federal papers. Right, I think I even shot some that were older than me. I shot a lot when I was there. It was free ammo, free targets. I was going to take advantage of it as much as I could. And so then I didn't shoot them for a number of years once I got out of the army uh, between sponsorships and things like that. And then when I when I got approached by them back in, I think it was 2018, you know, it just everything fell into place and I got to shoot the federal papers again. And I, I fell in love. I knew the reason why I had loved them so much to begin with is that you know they shoot great. They smell amazing when you shoot them too. And they break targets harder than any other ammunition I've ever shot. And all of my teammates have agreed with that same thing. Hmm. I'll have to try that out. I actually, so I was only able to tour. Well, they, we were short on time. And in fact, they weren't even going to originally give me a tour, but then I was like, Oh, you know, I'd really love a tour hint, hint. And and so they gave in and they were like, okay, so you have to pick a section like rifle, pistol, shotgun. And I was like, yeah, let's do pistol. I should have done shotgun because everyone was like, shotgun is probably the most impressive to see. But even then, I mean, that is not to say that the pistol section where they were making all of the same was not impressive. And you can see just like, I mean, it's definitely quality stuff. Just 
all of the, you know, I mean, everything that they overlook, whereas like other ammunition, and I'm not going to say names, but I mean, how many times do you open up a box and it's like, you know, the bullet isn't in there all the way. It's not seated in there where it should be, or, you know, it's just like, it's not consistent, especially if you're shooting like long distance. I mean, I've shot some 6.5 Creedmoor that same brand, same grain, everything. And it's just not consistent from, you know, depending on the year that they made it and it's frustrating. So federal definitely does an amazing job and I hope they don't drop me because I'll be putting my foot in the mouth where I'm just like, Oh no, Fioki, Fioki's great. Yeah, no, they're, they're great. <laughs> but yeah, they, they do make some really nice stuff. And then you're also sponsored by Beretta. And how long have you been with them? I've been with Beretta since I was 13. So almost 20 years now that I've shot, shot for Beretta. And I mean, it's, I can't ever see myself leaving that brand because I love it so much. I mean, it's, the gun that I'm shooting right now, they're going to have to pry out of my hands. I, the one that I'm shooting now is the DT-11 Black. And I have a custom stock on it mm-hmm. because of the hand grip, which is it's basically a pistol, Olympic pistol grip with a modification on the back to make it a stock. And at that one, the stock is made out of Germany, but the, the gun itself from the receiver forward is just a stock out-of-the-box gun. I mean, I, I have standard chokes. And everything else is the same. Triggers, trigger hasn't been modified, nothing. That gun is the epitome of a competition gun because it's, it's made to work. And it's going to last the majority of people their, their lifetime of shooting. But for somebody that's, that's putting in tens of thousands of rounds a year, that's a gun that you know you have full faith in and that's always going to work. Mm-hmm. And if something does happen to break, the DT stands for drop trigger. And you can just uh, push the safety up, click the receiver open, and the trigger pulls out the bottom. And I can replace one of those parts in, in that trigger within two minutes. Wow. And then you pop it back in and you're good to go again. So it's, it's made for the competitor. And, you know, it's, like I said, I've, I've always shot them and I wouldn't shoot anything else. Yeah, no kidding. That sounds amazing. That's definitely key because I know just even in local matches, you know, how many people have, you know, their guns break and it's like, then, you know, I mean, people are nice enough to let you borrow their guns, but it's just not the same. Yeah, no, mine is so specialized that I've shot for so long and with a very specific gun. I mean, I've really over the course of my main career only shot three different guns and I can feel the difference between 20 grams and the end of my barrel. Uh, it, which is, you know, my barrels that I'm shooting right now are 1.35 kilos. The first barrel that they sent over to me was 1.37. And my transitions are different ever so slightly, but they're different. And could I have shot it and learned how to shoot it better? Yes. But when I got the second barrel, uh, which was the 1.35 kilos, everything just fell into place mm-hmm. immediately. And I'm like, this is, this is the one. And like this, this is better than the other one. And they're like, dude, you can't feel 20 grams. I'm like, I, look, I wouldn't have thought that I could either, but I can. Mm-hmm. And it's just you know, the difference between a half a foot of lead and the transition from one target to the second target. But that half a foot makes me have to accelerate and gain gun speed. And that's a negative thing when it comes to matching the speed of a target, what I do, because every, I have to pull sh- the trigger on both of my targets within about 1.1 seconds. 
So I have to go from my hip to my shoulder, match the speed of the target, pull the trigger, transition from a 65 mile an hour target over to a second target that's doing by that time about 55 miles an hour, match the speed, see it clearly and pull the trigger again. And all of that happens within 1.1 seconds. So 20 grams does have an effect. It's just, do you perceive it or not? And I've shot a lot of rounds, so I can definitely feel the difference. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Let's talk about the 2020 Olympics. Let's see. So you won your third gold medal, uh, which I think is another record, I believe, for you winning three gold medals in the same event, correct? Yes, that's correct. Tell me just kind of that experience of the whole, because I actually, right after the Olympics ended, I actually had Amber English on the show to talk about it. But I'm curious, like, you know, with like COVID and stuff, like what was the atmosphere like? Was it different this time around? Like, how would you describe it? It, it was definitely a lot different. And I I feel for the other athletes and that were on the team with me that hadn't gotten to, ex, hadn't got to experience Olympic Games before mm-hmm. because the energy that's typically around and inside the the Olympic Village, the Olympic uh, facilities where we're, where we're competing at, it's it's crazy. I mean, there's nothing else like it in the world. It is the pinnacle of all sporting events and nothing comes close. So like walking in opening ceremonies this year, there were only maybe a couple thousand volunteers in the stands and that was it. Now there were, there were athletes on the field, yes, but instead of like walking into opening ceremonies in Beijing and I literally like my eyes are almost shaking because it's so loud and they're chanting USA and the team is going crazy. It's, it wasn't anything like that because you walk out and it's quiet now there, but I mean, it's still neat, but it's vastly different than the experiences before. Yeah. And then competing at the, at the shooting facility, they had stands for several thousand people, but during my final, there may have been 500 people watching. And that's between other athletes and coaches coming down to watch the event, as well as the, all the volunteers basically from the entire facility came to watch the event because it was the last event of the day. And so it's just not the same. And it was a great experience. And I, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I was just glad that we were able to have an Olympic Games. Yeah. Because of what it means for the world. And that's truly a two-week period, two or three-week period where we don't have to worry about politics. You, do, you know, the, the coverage back in the U.S. isn't just inundated with all the bad things that are going on. We see about the positive things that we're doing. And it, it's, it's, that's what it's meant for. Mm-hmm. And it's supposed to be above everything else. It's just enjoying yourself on the world stage, doing a sport that people love. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, you can't trade that for anything. Yeah. No, I can definitely understand that. Wrapping up a little bit. So do you have any future plans that you can share with listeners? Uh, so continuing to work with, uh, with the sponsors on some good deals, uh, with some things that are going to be potentially coming out that'll have uh, the Vincent Hancock brand associated with it, like with Beretta. Uh, we're going to be working with, with Federal for the next four years as well throughout the Olympic Games. Uh, I'm currently also working with uh, First Form, which is a, a supplement company mm-hmm. based out of St. Louis. It's, it's been a, a great thing for me. Uh, I've kind of changed my perspective on physical fitness. And I was hurt for a number of years, so it was difficult for me to try to get to where I wanted to be. But I had uh, our team physical therapist, Matt Zanis. He was able to, he's also a strength and conditioning coach. He was able to get me to a point where I wasn't in pain every day. So then I really focused on getting where I wanted to be physically. And so 
you know, taking those supplements has been wonderful as well and, and getting me to where I want to be in that way. So definitely you'll see some stuff on my, on my social media that's highlighting the fact that you know, I'm in the gym constantly. I've got some good training partners that are here with me in Fort Worth that we're all to get doing this together mm-hmm. and kind of changing the, the outlook of what the shooting sports are when it comes to physical preparation. Yeah. And, uh, and then one other thing I'm working on trying to get some more shooting facilities here in, in the Fort Worth DFW area, or even just in Texas, we've, we've been inundated with requests by kids or by shooting teams with their youth shooting teams that want to start programs. But the problem is, is there aren't enough facilities in this area to be able to host those kids coming out and shooting. So it's been difficult because of the way the economy is and the, the land prices of being able to find a place to actually build one. But that is definitely something I'm going to be pursuing over the next course of the next couple of years is trying to find a place to expand the opportunities for the shooting sports, both rifle, pistol, and shotgun, and getting these kids started because they're the next generation. And if I could ever choose a legacy to leave behind, it's to be able to grow the shooting sports and pass this on to the next generation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I think that's extremely important. I'm actually surprised like in Fort Worth that there isn't that many facilities. There's several that are, that are private, Mm -hmm. uh, that are member only, but when you find those places, it's typically really hard to get the teams in. And where I'm at right now is Fort Worth Trap and Skeet Club and they're great. I mean, they, they've got, oh my goodness, six or seven, maybe even eight youth teams that come throughout the week. But that they're using all the fields, you know, pretty much every evening throughout the weekend, they can't add any more. And the one public range we have across the street, which is a sporting place only, they let the kids come in too. But again, there's only so many they can allow to take up the space on their ranges. Mm-hmm. And then outside of that, I mean, the next closest uh, public trap and skeet range is like an hour away from here. Wow. And then sporting clays, you know, it's, it's about a 45 minute drive from here. So it's, we have them. It's just they're spaced out and they're difficult to get to. And will they let kids in? Mm-hmm. Now, there's there's several that are private, but some of them let kids in and some of them don't. It's just you never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For those who want to follow you on social media, where can they find you? Uh, on Instagram is my main main page. I have that in Facebook as well. It's just at Vincent underscore Hancock. And then I'm just at the very infancy of starting a YouTube page. Um, I'm getting some cr- some content created for that over the next couple of months and really going to start streaming that along to include you know, my journey through the Paris 2024 games, as well as some hopefully very helpful and insightful shooting tips too. And that's just at Vincent Hancock on YouTube. Awesome. Okay, cool. All right. Well, moving forward, Caldwell. I've talked about how durable and affordable Caldwell steel targets are, but right now they're even more affordable. There's a sale going on for the AR500 targets. They're anywhere from 13 to 30% off, depending on which target. For example, the 13-inch Octagon target is only $69. The 10-inch Coffin target is only $47. They also have the plate hangers on sale too. So 
basically you can save. Also, they have a deal right now site-wide. If you spend $150 or more, a free portable range kit with 8-inch AR500 Target will be automatically added to your cart. Definitely check that out at caldwellshooting.com. Also, with your first order, don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY10, and that gets you another 10% off. Politics. What is going on in the world today? It's political AF. This week in politics. So this was kind of interesting. In the last couple of weeks, details have come out that the ATF is amazing a distributing amount of records of firearm sales this year. Every time someone purchases a firearm from a dealer, you're required to fill out a 4473 form. And this is, you know, essentially just doing the background check. A lot of people, what they don't realize is this form doesn't go into a database. So there's actually no record of the guns that you purchase technically. So for example, I'm, you know, for example, an FFL, let's say Vincent, let's say your name comes up, you know, they suspect something, they would call me and they're like, Hey, we know that you sold a gun or you did a background check on Vincent. Can you just look up and submit, you know, the forms that he filled out? And I would submit the 4473 form and then they would see what gun you bought. Or let's say a gun comes up in a crime, they track the serial number. So essentially they go to the manufacturer, the manufacturer reports which distributor they sent it to. And then the distributor says, you know, which FFL they ultimately sent it to. And then that's how they would trace the firearm. It's actually, there's no like database that you could just log into and just put in the serial number and get that information. And I'm pretty sure that the NRA fought really hard for there not to be in a database. We actually can thank the NRA for that. Don't quote me, but I am pretty sure that it was the NRA that made this happen. The law actually says that, you know, like I said, it can't go into a searchable database. What is required, though, is the 4473 forms must be maintained for 20 years by the FFL dealer when it was purchased. I've actually heard different things. So another thing that's frustrating is depending on which ATF agent you talk to, some will say that you only have to keep it for seven years. Some will say 20. Some will say, you know, yeah, you can dispose of it after a while. I personally don't know if you, I wouldn't even feel comfortable disposing of it, let's say even after 20 years. But once you decide that, you know, let's say you decide that you no longer want that FFL or you're switching locations or something like that, or let's say you got a business, you're required to send your uh, forms, the 4473 forms, to ATF's National Tracing Center, which I believe is in uh, Virginia. And it's not supposed to be scanned, but they are now scanning and recorded and recorded for possible tracing in the future. Again, though, they can't be entered into a searchable database. However, they've been concerned recently that the ATF may be violating the rule or preparing to, after all, the 4473 images can be easily processed with the OCR technology. One of the things that people are questioning right now is usually there's a million out of business dealer records sent to the ATF each month. This year, though, there's been a staggering 54.7 million 4473s processed by the ATF. Some people are wondering, like, okay, what's going on? Why are there so many more? You know, if you go from usually a million to 50, let's say 55 million, I mean, that's quite the difference. 
In fact, I even talked to, I had an ATF friend at the time, and he said that I wasn't even aware that they scanned them. I thought that even that was illegal, that it all just essentially is in this big building and they have people going, you know, by hand going through these documents. And, you know, if there's a trace, they have to go through the documents by hand and find them. I don't know. It's interesting. Basically, it kind of just leaves one to wonder if they are trying to push a national registry of firearms which they've been wanting to do. And who knows, maybe it's with the purpose of confiscating those types of guns that they don't like, including ARs and other firearms. Anyways, just something to be, you know, made aware of. Nothing's happening as of yet, but definitely keep an eye on that. Manicor Arms. If you've got a Steyr AUG, you're probably aware that there aren't a lot of aftermarket parts for it. Manicore Arms, though, has you covered. So Manicore Arms has more comfortable, the Raptor charging handle, as well as their signature switchback charging handle that retracts when it's not in use. They've also got the Brass Buster to deflect brass, which is definitely a must, especially if you're using it weak side. And one of the hardest things to find for the AUG is a good scope mount that lets you use a modern optic. Mandacore Arms has one that looks like the original mount, but lets you mount a standard 30 millimeter optic or a one inch optic with spacers. But you can check out all of that stuff at mandacorearms.com. Use the code ABARocks15, that's all one word, and that gets you 15% off. QA There's no such thing as a stupid question. Just kidding. Visit gunfunny.com forward slash contact to submit yours. Today's Q&A, actually nobody submitted a question. I don't know, guys, what's going on? You sleeping? Uh, if you do have any questions for me, just go to gunfunny.com and click on the contact us form and submit your question. But today's question is made up by yours truly, me. And I wanted to talk about my vacation just because talking about it will make me feel like I'm back there. <laughs> uh, so I went to Scottsdale, Arizona and it was a lot of fun. It was great weather. It was mostly like high 70s, 80s. So it was perfect. It wasn't like, you know, obnoxiously hot. I don't think that I could live there during the summer. In fact, how hot does it get in, in Fort Worth? Uh, it can get really hot. You know, we've, we hit uh, upwards of 110 degrees uh, on the regular during the midsummer. And then we also have the snowmageddons that get here like this past February. So you know, it's we're not we, we see six inches of snow here and everything shuts down, but somehow we can manage 110 to 112 degrees in the that's, summers. That's just so fine. crazy. So how do you even train in that weather? Because, I mean, I've been on the range some days where it's like 100 degrees and I'm just like after like an hour or two, I'm so over it. I'm so hot and I I feel bad because at least I could wear like <laughs> shorts and a tank top and like be like, all right, whatever. But like, guys, I don't know. I mean. You still have to wear longer shorts. I don't see you wearing, you're not, you don't strike me as the type that's wearing. Although I will say lately, the guys wearing the short shorts is like making some weird fashion <laughs> statement. It's like in style now. Dude, it's freaking, it's, it's like weirding <laughs> me out. <laughs> it's a little too short. Uh, so I guess you could get away with those, but I'd imagine it's got to be pretty hot. Uh, it's, I mean, it's definitely hot. The big thing for us is we have to wear a vest on the, on the outside over top of our, like, I'll just wear, I'll wear workout shorts and a t-shirt. And my vest is on over top of that. So you can clearly see wherever I, whenever I take my vest off, 
you know, wherever my vest is, there's sweat yeah. all over me. So yeah. I usually bring a couple of shirts with me to make, make the change throughout the course of a day, but it's, uh, it's hot, but yeah. you just, uh, we don't have, we're a summer sport in the Olympics, so we don't have a choice but to deal with it. And, you know, in Tokyo this past summer, it was, uh, gosh, mid to high nineties with 90 something percent humidity. And we were standing on top of a black tarp. Oh, uh, wow. so it was just radiating heat and one of the hottest I've ever been, but yeah, I'd imagine like, it, right? I'd imagine sweats like dripping in my eyes and, you know, I mean, especially when there's humidity, I do not look good when there's humidity. I have like my, my <laughs> Jew curls come out. Like I have this like frizzy Jew, like curly hair, Afro looking thing. Uh, I sweat like everywhere. Like I am not one to deal with the elements very well. <laughs> I look so bad, but man, I could just imagine, especially 90% humidity. That's insane. It was, it was hot. It's a definitely memorable, uh, time that hopefully I won't have to experience again. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you guys do anything to train for that? I mean, that's just like before the games here, it was really hot. So I would shoot in the morning from like nine to noon. And then I would go to the gym after that for a couple of hours and then I'd come back and I train again at like 3 PM, hmm. you know, the hottest part of the day yeah. and we're out here for another hour and a half or so. Yeah. And then you know, that's, that's my day. So two a days during the hottest parts of the day, uh, w- but varying up the sun conditions too. And you know, that's about all we can do to practice for it. Yeah. I would imagine too, like if you're not used to that, that also would kind of make or break, you know, winning. I mean, absolutely. It's yeah. a, it's a big difference maker for those. We don't have a super high humidity here in Fort Worth mm-hmm. because it's, it's very, um, it's very windy. So typically we dry out pretty quick, but uh, it's still heat is heat. Yeah. And uh, no, it's not the same, but you know, we just do the best that we can. Yeah. And if I was living in Houston, maybe that'd be more appropriate for what we, what we had to go through over there. But mm-hmm. you know, I was able to just manage it here. Yeah. Hmm. Well, my vacation was actually, I mean, like I said, I haven't taken a vacation in forever. And normally, most people, when they go on vacations, they plan all this like sightseeing and all these events and stuff. And I kind of didn't really want to do that this year. I really, because then it's like you need a vacation from your vacation because you're just exhausted by the time you get back. I met up with a friend out there and we just like sat by the pool. We did some hiking. We ate really good food, but it was actually pretty low key and I had no problem with it. And I don't know. It was just nice. And it, it's like, it kind of makes me want to buy a house there. Although I did put that on my Instagram and some people were mean about it. They were like, no, we don't need any more people moving here. And I was like, okay, whoa. First of all, I'm like 2A friendly. Like with all the people from California moving there, I think you should welcome you with open arms for being honest. Cause I think, you know, I'm awesome. like, unless you want your state to just go to crap like California, but and then some people were like, we don't need any more snowbirds. Cause that's what I would do is I would just live there during the winter and then come back here during the summer. And I don't know. I was like, okay, you don't have to be mean about it. And then some people were actually really nice about it, but, but yeah, I think that's going to be my goal is to figure out how I can do that. Cause, uh, right. this life, this cold, it's just not for me. <laughs> I don't blame you there either. Yeah. All right. So tack detox. Tack detox. Discussing popular guns and gear. Love it? Hate it? Find out now. CMMG announced a new firearm this week, which I actually didn't even get to see. My editor put this in. 
it's not necessarily a new firearm. It's more of a, a firearm in a new caliber. And it's a caliber that you guys probably aren't familiar with. At least you may not recognize the caliber first. So it's the, and hopefully I'm saying this right, the 46 by 30 or they just call it the 4.6. It's a cartridge that's been around since the 90s and was developed by Heckler & Koch to compete with FN's 5.7 by 28. It's a similar short bottleneck cartridge with a flat trajectory out to about 150 yards, and the ammo is lightweight, so more rounds that could be carried. Most of us aren't familiar with it on the surface because the only gun chambered in it is the MP7, which has never been available in the U.S., CMMG has now created a new version of their popular Banshee AR, which is another gun that I have actually not shot. Have you had the opportunity to shoot their Banshee? Uh, No, I don't think so. I mean, I heard good things about it. A lot of people liked it. But yeah, so they just came out with the Banshee that's chambered in the 4.6. Kind of interesting. The only thing that I'm kind of curious about, though, is, I guess, ammo. So apparently, Sealer and Bella and Fioki, they're the only ones who offer the 4.6 to the U.S. market. Which is weird that they would even offer it to the U.S. market when the MP7 isn't. I don't know. That's weird. But anyway, so when they came out with this gun, uh, you can get it in the Banshee AR or the pistol version that comes with the SBA3 brace or available in SBR. MSRP on this isn't bad. It's uh, basically $1,400 for either version and spare mags costs an extra $39. So really not badly priced. I guess the only thing that I'd be worried about is just ammo. But with this gun coming out, maybe more people will jump on the bandwagon more, you know, ammo companies will start making this round. But I would definitely be interested in trying this out and seeing how it shoots because I am actually a pretty big fan of the 5.7 by 28. Just actually for that reason, because it, you know, has quite a bit of power and it's a lot lighter and you hold more rounds. All right, GSM Outdoors. If you need to add something stabby to your EDC, you should definitely check out Cold Steel. They have an overwhelming amount of blades to choose from. Vincent, are you into knives at all? A little bit here and there. Uh, I've got a few different ones. Uh, most of the ones I have are Kershaw's, uh, back in the day when I was at the army marksmanship unit, we had the Kershaw guys come down and spend some time with us and just fell in love with how, how kind they were. And they, they actually gave us one of the knives too. And I think I've bought somewhere around a dozen or maybe even close to two dozen of those knives at this point and between giving them out to family or friends. And then of course I lose like one a year Yeah, and I have to replace mine. I love how I'm like, are you into knives? And you're like, yeah, kind of. I mean, I only bought like two dozen, but you know, like no big deal, <laughs> which is more knives than I've bought. <laughs> Although well, I do now have. I'm gonna, now I'm going to have to look these up though and see what, see what uh, these guys have. Yeah. I mean, they have some really nice stuff. I mean, they have like your folders, your fixed blades, neck knives, a bunch of stuff that's actually under $40, but they also have a ton of other like higher end options too um, that are still competitively priced. They also have blades, including like machetes. Tons of hunting blades. Hannah Barron, actually, uh, you can see her a lot of times when she goes on her hunts. She's using cold steel knives. And then if you're into swords, they've got you covered with fully functional swords, both modern and historical style. So basically, they've got you covered in every category. 
definitely check them out. The website is coldsteel.com. Don't forget to use the code GUNFUNNY20, and that is going to get you 20% off your entire order. Today in AF. Stupid. Funny. Cool. Interesting. Awesome. As f- Never mind. AF. This was kind of an interesting article, and it's, I'm still so confused by it, but... Apparently, so these self-driving cars are invading San Francisco neighborhoods, which it's San Francisco. So I'm like, meh, don't really care. But residents in a cul-de-sac in San Francisco have noticed some odd behavior lately. At all hours of the day, they see these Waymo self, and hopefully I'm saying that right, Waymo self-driving cars that arrive on their street with no reason for being there. One resident noticed it when a strange hum woke her up in the middle of the night. She thought that it was a spacecraft outside her window, but it was a bunch of self-driving cars turning around on her street. The cars aren't dropping anyone off, you know, they're not picking anyone up. They're just driving up and down the street at all hours for no reason. And there's a lot of them, often a line of them uh, waiting. They could be like up to 50 cars at a time uh, that show up like every five minutes, which is insane. Waymo says that the cars are just doing what they're supposed to, obeying road rules, which makes no sense. They are entering a dead-end street where their, quote, safety drivers are forced to do a manual three-point turn to get the car moving again. Without the drivers, the cars would simply pull up and clog the street. Waymo is owned by Google's parent company, Alphabet, and has been testing their self-driving cars for a year now in San Francisco. When Elon Musk was asked about this, who is the CEO of Tesla, his response was, ha ha. Which I would think so too. I mean, that's kind of weird, right? And if I lived there, uh, I would be complaining. I'd be like, get your freaking cars out of my neighborhood. <laughs> and this is the point where I say, you know, this is where computers are supposed to be smarter than us in driving, right? Yeah. And there you go. That's the reason why like, I have nothing against it. If people like it, cool. But I have issues with something being out of my control. I know. Yeah. It'd be a while before I can get one of those cars. (laughs) So I don't know what kind of car you have, but my car has done some weird things. I have an Infiniti QX50 and it's a 2019 and bought it brand new. And it occasionally, I mean, it like it'll blink. Like if you're speeding up and the car in front of you is stopping, which I appreciate because sometimes I'm not paying attention. But sometimes like if I'm backing out and let's say there's a car there or something, it just automatically stops. Or same if let's say there's a car stopped in front of me. And it thinks that I'm still going, it'll automatically stop. But it's not even like a, a nice stop where it just eases into it. It's more like it stops and you get like whiplash. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And it happens when I'm like, what the hell? Like, I know that there's a car stopped in front of me or let's say it's turning and it's, you know, it's kind of stopped. But I know that I have plenty of time that by the time it's turned, it's not going to be in my way. And yeah, I just I can't stand it. I honestly, I hate it. Like only the few times where it occasionally beeps, like that's good. I I don't mind that, but everything else when it just, and I don't, I don't know how to shut it off. It doesn't happen all the time. It just happens like in the most random times and it just has like a mind of its own. Uh, I drive a Ford truck. So thankfully mine just yells at me on the (laughs) speakers, but my wife has an Audi and it's on several occasions. It's done the exact same thing. Uh, just last weekend I was backing into the garage and then all of a sudden it just slammed on the brakes and yeah. like stopped violently. I mean, I was doing about three miles per hour, but it still felt like I was slammed when I was doing like 15 miles an hour. Yeah. And 
really weird. But then the worst one was I was driving down the interstate doing about 70 and there was nobody in front of me, nothing. And all of a sudden it just decided to slam on the brakes in the middle of the interstate for about three quarters of a second. And I mean, throws me and the kids against the seatbelts. And I'm like, what in the <laughs> world just happened? This was crazy. Wow. And oh, so I hate it. I despise that stuff. Yeah. I know. I feel like it's going to cause way more harm than it'll ever do good. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. It's uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not a fan. All right. So wrapping up reviews, we actually only have one iTunes review. So if you haven't done so and you have an iPhone, it's actually really easy. Just find the uh, podcast app, click on it, search for gun funny and leave a review and bam, you get entered to win cool prizes. And Vincent, normally I would say pick a winner, but I mean, this person, because it's one and only, she automatically wins, but she did write a really cool review. So her name is K8, I don't know, K-E-R-S 4x4. I don't know how you would, am I like missing something? Like, I don't know. Anyways, titled New Girl 5 Stars, just started shooting, actually picked up my M&P Shield 40 last Wednesday and have shot about 50 rounds. I enjoy gun funny while hiking. I listened to episode one through 10, then decided to switch to the most recent episodes. I'm not sure what happened in between, but either way, I enjoy all of them. This actually kind of made me laugh because the show has changed significantly. And I used to have a co-host, which I got rid of like, I don't know, maybe by like a hundred episodes in or something. I'd get rid of that dead weight. It was just, you know, wasn't working out, <laughs> but it has changed a lot anyway. So I'm glad that you still enjoy all of them. She said, your YouTube channel is great also and has really helped. Thank you for the new girl, Katie Bruckner. Thank you. Really appreciate that review. I'm always happy when there's other females that, you know, are starting to get into shooting and, you know, especially if you're hiking, I think it's really important to have a gun with you when you're hiking. So yeah, really excited to get that review. If you could just head on over to gunfunny.com, click on the contact us form and send me a message and just let me know a good address to send that prize pack to. And in the meantime, if you guys want to find me on social media, YouTube, any of that good stuff, you can just, there's links for all of it at gunfunny.com. If you enjoy the show and you want to support it, you can become a monthly Patreon or you can make a one-time donation. All you have to do is go to gunfunny.com, click on the support the show link. Also, Blown Deadline, he gives away a $300 gift certificate to a lucky Patreon every month. $5 and up Patreons, they get a Patreon-only patch that only will be given to Patreons. It will never be for sale. So if you have that patch and you see other people having that patch, you know that they're a supporter of the show. And you get access to our Facebook-only Patreon group, which is a lot of fun. Also wanted to thank the $25 Patreons who are Corbin Bonafide, Iraq Veteran 8888, Sake Holsters, Justin Paulson, Jason Anderson, Sportsman's Guide, Daniel Treadwell, Keith Calamore, and Melissa Ridings. King of the Patreon is Jon Snow. He wants me to say the operator Tickles was asked to star in James Bond movie. She refused, saying, I don't need a license to kill. All right, Vincent, thank you so much for spending the afternoon with me and talking about everything that you do. You're extremely impressive. Definitely keep up the great work. And can you just remind listeners once again, if they want to follow you on social media, such as Instagram, your new YouTube channel, where can they find you? Uh, it's thank you again for having me too. It's been awesome. Uh, I appreciate you having me on. Of course. And if anybody is interested in following me on Instagram or Facebook, it's just at Vincent underscore Hancock. And then you can start to watch the journey that's that is going to be YouTube. 
Uh, it's at Vincent Hancock. Okay. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, on that note, I will see you guys next week. Want to send feedback? Tell us about a company or anything else. Go to gunfunny.com forward slash contact.